0: Good evening. Hey, welcome. Hope you're glad to be here. We've made it to the 11th chapter in our studies in First Corinthians. So as you make your way there, and we study tonight, <clears throat> we'll see the Apostle Paul really encouraging and even correcting the believers at Corinth concerning two essential traditions of the church that he wants them to maintain correctly. First part of this chapter, he's going to be talking about that principle of headship, leadership, who's to lead in the church, who's to lead in marriages. And then the second half of this uh, chapter, he's going to talk about that principle of communion, something we do so well here. We do it weekly. These guys weren't doing it right. They were doing it in the wrong spirit, and he corrects them. So those two essential traditions we're going to be addressing today. First, the principle of headship. Leadership. Let's check it out starting in verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says here in verse 2 Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there you go. He introduces the principle of headship. And really, when he says Christ is the head of man, the husband is the head of the wife, and God is the head of Christ, he's, he's talking about leadership, right? The head is, it really has the priority of function over our body, Right? It tells the body and leads the body in movement and function, and it just speaks of leadership. And there's three things, right? (laughs) We saw headship, Christ is the head and leads men and mankind. And then he also says God is the head or the leader of Christ. And then he also says one a little bit more controversial, right, in the culture that we swim in is that a husband is the head of his wife. So let's do this. Let's take the two easy ones first. <laughs> I want to get off to a good start. good start's important, right? But I think the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit who penned these words, uses these two examples really effectively to help us understand the third more controversial one. Okay, so let's check it out. It says that Christ is the head of mankind or man. Now listen, as believers, we understand this, right? I mean, come on, right? In Hebrews, it says that he is the author, right? And finisher of our our faith. He's really the pioneer that paved the way for Christianity, Jesus Christ, right? What he did for us so we might live through his sacrifice, correct? I mean, we know this as Christians. We know next week we'll cover this verse, chapter 12, verse 13. We know that by one Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, we've all been baptized into one body, right? We're the body of Christ. It's throughout the New Testament. Who's our head? Of course, Jesus Christ is the head, right? Right? In fact, when you see the word Christ in the New Testament with the article the in front of it, the Christ, that's what he's referring to. Jesus Christ, the head, and his church, the body. It's a unit. It's called the Christ. We know that, right? We know that we serve and we function for his glory and his honor at his will, right? To get God's will done in our life, we're we're under his direction if we do Christianity correctly, We're living a life by the power and through the direction of another, amen? We know this as Christians. But even, I think this is speaking even more to like, not just Christians, people who with their mouth and their whole being embrace the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like at the moment that you believed, the Spirit took you and dunked you and identified you with Jesus Christ and now you're in his body and he's the head. It's more than that. I think it's all of mankind, Christ is the head of, yes. right? Yes. You see, not all will admit it if you haven't noticed it lately. <laughs> if you listen to people talk, but there's gonna come a day, right? Philippians chapter two, verse 11. Because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the supreme being of all time and space in this universe, amen? That's Jesus Christ, and someday when he returns, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, amen? Amen, Amen. and listen, man, I heard you guys in worship, there was a lot of Amen, so I don't want any delaying in that. If I say amen, I want one right next to me, (laughs) right? I heard you guys up here, it was good, I liked it. Yeah, in that moment, every person will be forced to answer the most paramount question of all time in the universe, and that is, what did you do with Jesus Christ? What did you do with him? And everybody's gonna get it because he's the head or the leader of man, believer and unbeliever as the supreme being. Amen? Amen. Mm. I think this example's here to also think about what kind of leader is Jesus Christ? He's a lot of things, but I'll tell you, the point here right now is that in our relationship with Jesus Christ, is he ever domineering? He desires our love. But becoming a Christian is a voluntary act. If it wasn't, the whole world would probably be saved because we'd grab people by the nape of the neck and bring them up here and say, now believe. Right? It's voluntary. That's what makes Christianity so awesome, in my opinion, is that you never underestimate the heart of a volunteer doing something out of love, out of seeing your need and someone who can meet it, and you make a choice. Love always involves a choice, and you say, I need that. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to take the faith that God gave me. I'm going to place it in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. I need that, right? He never forces that. He's just waiting for us. Something to think about when we continue and we get to the controversial part. How is he the head over all of mankind? The second one, God is the head of Christ. Now, this is demonstrated perfectly Philippians chapter 2, right? When God the Father, right, sent God the Son, the second person, the Trinity, right, Right. to be in the form of man, right? He humbled himself. He became a human, fully divine and fully human, the God-man. He came down here, and he submitted to the Father's plan, right? He submitted to the Father's plan so that he could fulfill the redemptive mission to save all of mankind, right? And if you read Philippians chapter 2, and I highly recommend it because it's probably the best run of scriptures there in all of the Bible, it speaks of the eternal Son of God hiding in a way his divinity without losing it in a lowly Nazarene, who even more humbly submitted to the Father by dying a criminal's death on the cross. And it says there that being God, being in the form of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, being the form of a God, fully human and fully divine, he said he didn't see being divine or being God as something to be grasped at, because he was divine. He was fully God in human clothes. He wasn't inferior to God, the Father. It's something we need to remember when we study Christology, when we study Jesus Christ. He may become a janitor and a servant, but he's God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity. And he's not inferior to the first person of the Trinity. They're equal. That's the point I think we need to hone in on here is that God's headship over Christ. And Jesus Christ's volunteer humbling and submitting to that plan did not make him any less than God the Father. He was about his Father's business. He wanted to get on that cross for you and I. He did that willingly, and he, he, it cost him something, but he was never less God. Something to remember when we move into husbands are the head of the wife. And from those previous two examples, we must say something to men. If you are to be the leaders of your wife, you are to do it never, never dominating your wife. There's been a ton of abuse in the church over the years. This verse never says that. The examples he gives is all you got to do is look at God the Father and Christ's submission to him. And all you got to do is look at man and us, how we submitted to Christ. And you'll understand the kind of leader you need to be, men. It's never domineering. It's to be so loving and to be so giving and to put her first so that she sees the goodness and the kindness and the love and the dedication and the sacrifice so she willingly, voluntarily wants to be covered by you. That's the idea, right? Isn't that what happened with, when we came to Jesus Christ? It says that it's what? The domineering heavy hand of God that brings us to repentance? It's his his loving kindness, his goodness that brings you and I to the point where we go, I want to be under that. I want to be, I want him to be my Lord. And I want him to be my covering because I don't got what it takes. And he's good. He's a good, good God. Amen? men. Never domineering, loving kindness. Bring her under a loving submission, willingly wanting because you're a good person and a good husband. Wives, here's what I'd say from those examples look to Christ. Christ submitted, He submitted. He humbled himself, and he submitted to the Father. And you are no more less than your husband after you do that. In fact, I would say, and because I have lived with my wife long enough to know that she's probably superior to me. <laughs> and I listened to her talk and the thing, the, her prayer life and her commitment, her discipline in the Lord. I listened to even her friends talking. I'm like, man, that's not what my friends are talking about. They're on a higher plane sometimes. But wives, you're equal to your husbands in your person. Your function is to be under him. It makes you no know less of a person. Why don't you think about, and it's beautiful when you see it in a wife, why don't you have a humble swagger about your wife? your head covering. Why don't you say, you know what? I'm confident in who I am in the Lord and I'm gonna submit because that's God's will and that's his order and that's how he wants to move this thing on in marriage. Right? That's what I would say. There's a quiet and gentle persona of a, of a wife like that. It's like, I think the Apostle Peter said, it, it, it's an in, incorruptible beauty that's shown in a quiet and gentle spirit that's well-pleasing to the Lord. And that's when you see a wife perfectly submitted to her head. There's a counterpart to this, this section of scripture about men being the head of their wives having the leadership role. It's in Ephesians chapter five, and I I wanna just read it for you. It says, wives, chapter five, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, Love your wives as as Christ loved the church and gave himself and dedicated himself up for her. That's a beautiful picture. It's a husband dedicating himself solely to her and her submitting. And if you didn't catch it in that, (laughs) it's a way that we in our marriages, can show the glory of the church and Jesus Christ out of our lives. And it's a beautiful thing. There's a lot at stake because a lot of people are watching. Amen? So the next verses are really um, starting in verse 4 to verse 16 is, is really the Apostle Paul applying this principle of headship in church in Corinth, which as we will see was a first century Eastern culture. (laughs) And we'll, we'll read it. But he's applying this principle to them and what they were doing in their church and what it was saying. Let's check it out. Verse four, just applying this principle. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays and prophesies With her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. Now listen, um, head coverings said something culturally significant in first century Eastern culture in Corinth. They just did. It said something. Today, not so much, okay? If, women, there's a modern movement right now to get back to the head covering, and I just don't think that's the point here. The point is headship, the principle behind it. Women, if you want to wear a head covering, wear a head covering. If you don't, don't. Just remember the principle behind the head covering. I think that's the point here. I think he really cares what's on your head. I think he cares about, do you understand the principle of leadership in your marriage? That's what he wants to get through here. And, and one of the cool things about this section of scriptures for me anyways, is I noticed right away, is that men and women both prayed and prophesied in public church. Women, you're open to do it. Men, you were open to do it. The point here is though, if you read that, if you listen to that, is that they're to do it a little differently, right? A woman would to pray and prophesy in a womanly way. A man should do it in a manly way. That's all he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you do these things in public church, in that culture, if you women, you do that without a covering You're dishonoring yourself because you're telling people that you don't have a cover, that you're not submitted under your husband. So you need to do it like a woman should do it, like a wife should do it. And men, if you put it on, you're dishonoring your headship, which is Jesus Christ. So yes, you both do it. You have the freedom to do that. But women do it as women do, and men do it as men do. That's all he's saying. He wants order, and he wants us to understand the principle of headship, right? Otherwise, if a woman is denying this principle, as some were here, he just says this, why don't you just shave your head and be dishonored and forget the whole thing? The only women that didn't wear head coverings in this culture were the temple prostitutes. It was their custom to shave their heads and not wear head coverings. So what Paul's saying is, listen, when you don't have a head covering on is what you're saying is, hey, I'm not under anybody, but for the right price, I will be. Get it? They're prostitutes. And that's not saying the right thing. He's saying, listen, wear your head covering when you do these things in church to show everybody that you understand this principle and that you're not for sale. Amen? It's always the same. There's some uh, supporting evidence through creation, I think, that women should have a leadership role, As a husband should have a leadership role over the wife. Let's check it out in verse 7 through 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man for man was not made from women, but a woman from the man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. The creation account is obviously important because it trumps all culture. So a lot of people come to this passage and go, oh, that's just, just the Eastern first century. This, this principle doesn't apply here. And Paul's saying, no, I'm going to go back to creation now. So if, if you can poo-poo all the culture you want, but I said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you another reason why a wife should have a covering, and it's from creation. And if you remember the creation event For some reason, in God's infinite wisdom, order matters to him. It says that the man was formed first, right? I don't know why, and I don't know why it's so important to him, but it is. Man was formed first. You remember in Genesis, he took some dirt, and he made Adam, and he blew blew the spirit of life in him. He became a man, and he did some things before he got Eve created out of the man, right? Right? Do you remember he got to name all the animals and the creation, right? He got to do all those things. And as he was looking at him, he even got to work. He put him in, put him in the garden, till it keep it, go be a utilitarian man, will you? And that's what he was. He was like this tool, he was walking around, working and naming. And then he noticed, and God noticed, it wasn't good for him to be alone because everybody else had a pair. He had no helper. And so he made Eve, right? He put, put Adam to sleep, and out of Adam came Eve, right? And he, it says in the Bible that Eve was made for, as a helper, to Adam. That's the, that's the creation of it. God took Eve and brought her to him, not the other way around. And Paul's just reminding us, listen, order seems to matter for God. Man came first. Eve was the helper and was brought to him. It says this matters. It says for the angels. He said, listen, you need to remember these things because of the angels. I don't know if you realize this, but not only when we properly do marriage does it show the world around us, the church, it also shows something to spirit beings. And they are watching, they are watching and they are here tonight and they are, they are everywhere and they're in a, a parallel universe we can't see, but they're here nonetheless. And these spirit beings, these angels, even with their necks swooped down, it says they're looking, they're looking. Galatians 3, they're looking down and they're, they're looking at these marvelous things that God created through Jesus Christ and the church. They know nof- nothing of grace. Angels didn't get grace. When they revolted and fell, a third of them, they're condemned forever with Satan They don't get a second chance. They don't get to call on the blood of Jesus Christ. They're looking down at us. They're looking down at Adam and Eve and all of their descendants and going, what? They're doing this. And they were there during creation. They were created before us. And they're looking and they're seeing what's going on. And all Paul's saying is, remember that order. It's important to God. It should be important to you. That's all he's saying. They're looking at us. And for that sake, we should keep things in order. God gives us a clear chain of authority in the home and in public worship. It's independent of culture and history. It's from the creation story. He created man to be the head or the leader over his wife. And if you don't like that, you can email Justin Cabot. He said he would take all the emails Justin Cabot at edgewaterfellowship.org. Okay? These next two verses are awesome because they create a little balance. You know what's so weird when, I, when I'm teaching this right now and when I was studying for it? It's like the, 100 years ago. It's nothing. Of course Now, with the gender bender thing, with all this stuff going on, there's the degrading of womanhood, it it just feels awkward to say a simple biblical truth. Like your husband should cover you, wives, in a beautiful, loving, not domineering way, and you should wanna be under him. Right? It's just so weird to me. But these next two verses... If you are a woman that's looking at me like this, like you're going to find me out in the parking lot and show me who the superior sex is, listen to these two verses. Because I just say, this is my note I made on it. God's balance. Check out this balance. And it's really, to steal a word from Pastor Matt's brilliant. Watch this. Verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, not man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Did you hear the great equality in that? So you can men say, hey, we were made first. You were made out of us. God brought you to me. And then you know what the woman can say? Every man after that woman Eve, every man came from that woman, right? Right? because you guys are amazing. The great miracle of childbirth happens in you, and that's to and for your glory, women. And I despise what's going on today when we hear words like birthing people, rubbish. It's degrading women, and that's why it makes me so mad. It's to your glory that the miracle of conception and growing a baby in your bodies, Makes you far superior than a man's body. Amen? And you may say, well, try childbirth, right? (laughs) You guys, with a little help from us men, but mostly on your own, with that miracle life, a little help from God, you can build a baby in your body, in every man that walked this face of the earth since Adam came out of you. Amen? That's great balance. You should think about holding yourself with a humble swagger because of that, woman. And realize not only that, but the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You guys have great power And it's the great equalizer. And I love those two verses because it kind of snaps us back into shape. And it just supports the great argument of equality. Differences in sexes, but equality in persons. Amen? That's the point here. He closes with just an argument from nature. And it's kind of a, it's not my favorite, but let me read it for you because it's here. (laughs) It says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, is it not her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Listen. Man, if you want to wear your hair long, wear your hair long. It doesn't matter. That's not the point here. In this culture, it was a little weird. But if you want to be Fabio, if you want to be Absalom, if you want to be Samson, you go for it. Because there's nothing wrong with it. That's not the point here. The point is, this is his argument, that if we would just left hair on top of heads, let nature take its course. The woman would probably have more hair, and it would be to her glory. It would be, and that makes sense. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of bright light here. I'm looking at you guys, and if we just, men didn't cut your hair, you would be more shiny than the women in this audience, I can tell you that, right? Women naturally have a natural covering. That's all he's saying. See, listen, hey, nature made you with a covering. That's all he's saying. That's the argument doesn't mean that men shouldn't have long hair or that all women have great hair, but it means the norm in nature is women have big hair and men, you can grow your hair long as you want, but it ain't gonna be as brilliant as the women. I think that's the point. So that's the principle of headship. Again, any questions, Justin Cabot, <laughs> edgewater.org, right? The next section is a good section of scripture. It's a tradition that has been in the church since its beginning. And it's the principle of communion, of the Lord's table. And I love the way we do it here. We do it regularly. It's not a special event. When I went to church, it was like, man, this special, it's set up, the table's set up, right? It was like, okay, we get to do it every week. And I love that about our church. It elevates communion to its core value of what we do here. And I like it, and I wanna read you this event and the way these believers were doing it wasn't right. You see, the Lord's Supper, communion, is to be taken in a spirit of love and unity and respect. Amen? That's how we're supposed to come to the table. These guys, as we'll see, this church at Corinth Corinth, were doing it in a spirit, as we'll see, of division, selfishness, and disrespect. And Paul was hot about it. He wasn't happy with his church when he found this out. Let's read chapter, uh, I mean, verse 17. Let's check it out. But in the following instructions, (laughs) I do not commend you. I like that. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Explanation point, did you like that? What? 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 Paul says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing to eat? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Ah. Like I said, Paul was not happy. Did you catch that? When there's an explanation point in the Bible, they're used very rarely, should tell you something. He's not happy because they were taking the Lord's Supper in a spirit of division and selfishness and disrespect, not in love and unity. And to understand this fully, we need to understand in that culture, in that church, the way that they did communion was a bit different than we do. They would... In the tradition of the early church, when it was formed in Acts, they would have these agape feasts or love feasts. It, it, it comes from Acts when they started, remember when they shared all things in common? That was their way to carry on that tradition and say, listen, we're all in this together. We're, we're God's family. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate that we're one. We're God's people his chosen people, his church. We're going to get together and we're going to share. We're going to share all common food together. You don't have to bring your own. There's no head table. We're all just going to buy some food and we're going to eat it together and we're going to love on each other and fellowship. And then after we're going to take the Lord's table. That was their And it's a lot like their love feast, kind of what we do here on family night. It's exactly the same thing. It's a great name. It's called family night. We come and we we all eat together. No one has to bring their own food. No one goes hungry, right? You can come and you can get teriyaki chicken or meatballs or hamburgers, right? It's awesome. Come, anybody. And come fellowship with us. Come share the same food and love on one each other, one another. That's all. That's all they. That's all they were doing. And then afterwards, after that meal, they would, they would take the Lord's table. Paul was unhappy. If you caught it, they didn't have a spirit of unity and love like those agape feasts said they should. And we're we're, were trying to represent. They had a spirit. Did you check it out here in, in verse eighteen. Divisions. There's divisions among you. You're, you're dividing, you see. It says, each one, goes, if you re, each one goes ahead and has his own meal, brings his own food and eats his own meal. And even it said, some were even hungry. Not everybody even got to eat. But you brought your better food and you ate in the corner and you didn't even fellowship. And there were some people that you're humiliating, he said, because they didn't eat, they're hungry. Some people come here on Wednesday nights because they're hungry and you can eat as much as you want and when you leave, there's probably some to-go cases that you can take. That's the spirit of a family night meal. That's the spirit of love and unity, right? There's no, no one's better than one another. These guys were bringing their filet mignons and saying, you guys can have the teriyaki chicken that Sean cooked, but I'm eating my filet mignon because I'm different than you. I'm selfish and I'm on my own. I'm not of you. See, I, I'm... I'm going to withdraw and be selfish, and I'm going to divide. Paul says, what? I mean, could you imagine if we did that here? It'd be so offending. It'd be so, so not what the body of Christ is all about. And that's what if this righteous indignation is going up in Paul. And Paul's like, what are you doing? You're humiliating people who don't have enough to eat. You're being selfish. You're dividing. That is the exact opposite of what communion is supposed to show right? So divided, right? So selfish. Some were even getting drunk. Could you imagine that? You just bring your six pack with you, with your filet mignon? So disrespectful. The wrong spirit. And Paul says, you're disgracing the church. You're disgracing people. This is not what it should be about. So divided, selfish, indifferent to God and his people, this church was hurting the church more than helping by doing communion after. Do you imagine trying to take the Lord's table drunk? I mean, geez, oh criminy. Could there be anything more damning? Could there be anything more disrespectful? Paul said, no, I won't commend you in this. You're wrong. I'm going to put you in your place. In sharp contrast, the next section, Paul said, This is how you guys should do it. You should do it this way. You should take communion in the spirit of unity and in love and in respect and a reverence. Check it out. He says, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Does it touch anybody else that he thanked himself for his own body that he was about ready to give for you and I merely hours before this meal? Jesus Christ, the most thankful being in all the universe, He thanked himself for his body that it was gonna go be given on behalf of all of mankind, amen? And then he said in the same way he took the cup and after the supper saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Amen? Paul's saying, hey, this is the way we do it. And if you're wondering if I learned this from somebody else, I didn't. He said he got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's one of the things that makes the great apostle Paul so great, in my opinion is you can read the account in Acts chapter 9 and even into 10, and you can read Galatians chapter 1, and it says this about Paul. After he got saved on the road to Damascus, he didn't go look for the authorities of Christianity. He didn't even go up to Jerusalem at that moment to meet the other apostles and get confirmation. He went out into the desert of Arabia. It says he was there for three years, and a lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what he was doing there or why he was there. But I am wholesale convinced that he was out there learning directly, graphically, alongside the risen and glorified Jesus Christ, learning stuff that only Paul knew, the mysteries that were hidden from the old and now revealed in the new. He was out there graphically, maybe in vision form. Literally in that verse in 23, it says, I learned this literally in the Greek alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. The risen and glorified Lord taught me this. He taught me many other things, but he taught me this communion. It's what makes him so special in the New Testament. It's what makes him the steward of the dispensation of grace. He's in charge of it. He's got the goods in a way, in in a direction that only he could know from the lips in the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He learned it right from Jesus. He said, listen, this thing that we're going to do here is to be done correctly. And I learned it from Jesus Christ directly. And it's learned through two symbols If you caught it, the bread in the cup, obviously. He says, take this bread. Jesus said, after you give thanks, and you eat it. And do this. It's my body. Take in again Jesus Christ. Live on him. He said himself, I am the bread from heaven, right? You will not hunger if you eat me. You know, Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's lived through a power of another. And it's the indwelling Godhead that powers us. We need to keep taking him in and remembering that. He provided that way for us to have this spiritual power again and again when we get empty, right? We live off him. We take him in and again. It's the only way we meet the righteous demands of a spiritual life from a righteous father. Amen. But to me, for sure, he's the bread of life. Take him in for your spiritual strength and power. But to me, maybe it's the way I was raised. When we take communion, it was always in a big loaf. And you got to take your grubby mitts and you you could grab a piece. That would never fly post-pandemic, would it? And sometimes when I was hungry, I'd take more. And sometimes I'd take a little piece. I like that. I like, they'd take it on this dish and they'd pass it around. One loaf, but many pieces, right? We're many members, but we were baptized into one body. It's the body of Christ and that symbolism's there. And this might help you as it helps me when I take communion. When I examine myself, when I'm waiting to take it, I always say the same thing. I said, Lord, am I treating the body like you treat the body? Because most of our hangups, most of our, Condemnations, most of our sins relate around relationships, don't they? They all come down to that. And when you take that bread, you might want to think about something. God's spirit placed you when you believed in that body of Christ that you're partaking of. And he did the same thing for your neighbor if he's a believer or she's a believer. And they're just as righteous as you in that spot, amen? And you may be right in that situation, but you're still wrong if you don't let that go and make it right. If it's among any power in you, you make it right. That's examining yourself, right? That's looking at the bread properly. Yes, sustenance, taking in Jesus Christ again, looking at unity, one loaf, many pieces, one body, right? That's what it says to me. And I think that's the idea here, the cup. says, so the cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? We take this cup, and what's inside of it? It may be juice or wine, but its symbolism is the blood of Jesus Christ, that precious blood of Jesus. Amen? What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus He washes us white as snow again and again and again, right? You cannot have remission of sin without spilt blood, right? That's what the Old Testament taught us. It's the blood. And now the ultimate sacrifice. He spilt his blood on the cross for you and for I to usher in a new way, a new covenant, right? The old ways past, not the law, but now in grace through his blood, we have forgiveness of sins. Amen? Amen. Come on, amen, forgiveness of sins. We were saved through that blood. We have been forgiven from that blood. We've been indwelled by that blood. See, that blood's powerful, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? That's what we're holding up and we're partaking of. Could you imagine doing that in a disrespectful manner? Oh, we just need to, oh, just take a second and think about that, right? All of that's made possible. Jesus Christ shedding his blood on that cross. The Lord's table, he says in that last verse, it's to be done constantly and repeatedly in remembrance of our Lord and his body and his blood. That symbolism that he is the bread of life and that we are one and we have true unity, not this fake unity that you hear about today, but real unity that the Holy Spirit seals us in together. You're not getting away from each other. So you can move to Idaho, you can move to Utah to get away from each other, but I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not getting away from each other because God sealed you as a body, Amen? amen? We are the ones that partake of his body and his blood. But the last section here as we finish up, Paul just gives us a warning. He just says simply, "Listen, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is Jesus Christ's body and his blood that we're messing with right now. And it's a big deal, and it's to be done correctly, and it's to, be, to the point, to be done in the right spirit, the right mindset. So be careful. Check it out. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Serious business to God. He said, listen, before you take these symbols that mean so much, Take a second and examine yourself. What does this mean? Well, it just means to be open in front of the Lord about your sins and about the status of your life and about the way you're living it and about the way you're thinking. Just be open before him. You handle your sins and your problems openly with him and you're open to change. You're saying, Lord, As Psalm 139 did, search my heart, know my thoughts, try me, examine me, Lord. See if there is any wicked way in me and show me the way of everlasting, right? That's examining yourself is Lord, even those things I miss, show them to me. I'm open to you before you take the symbols, you should do that. Just in a moment. It doesn't have to be a solemn, sad moment. He, he, by the way, he said, hey, examine yourself and then eat and drink. There's nothing superstitious about it. Nothing you have to be afraid of. It just means check yourself before you do that. Otherwise, you're being unworthy of it. And it's disrespectful. It's not the spirit that he wants you to partake in your heart. And only you know how to do that. No preacher man knows how to tell you how to do that. You do it between you and your God. And you all know those sneaky parts of your black hearts because I know mine and they're all different. And I can't tell you how to do it. I'm just telling you, examine yourself and be open and deal with your stuff before you partake and realize that there's power in taking it, right? It can change those things. And when you're open to that by faith, take it. Be afraid of it, take it. These guys weren't doing that. These guys, as we'll see, these guys knew that truth, knew they were supposed to examine themselves, but they were drunk and disrespectful, and they still took the elements. And Paul goes on to say, some of you are weak and ill and have even died because of this. Check it out. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we not may not be condemned along with the world. Serious business to God, taking communion. When you do unworthily, disrespectfully take those Elements like these guys did, said so they were, some of them were weak, some of them are sick, some of them even died. That's not to scare you, that's just to tell you that's what the Word of God says. You ever done something really stupid, like really stupid, a million, a million times and survived it? And you come out the other side. You know what most of us do in that moment? You start going, I could have died. Man, I don't want to do that again. How do I avoid that next time? That's examining yourself. What got me into this mess? Why did I stick my hand into that moving machinery? Why did I dive in that pool that was only two feet deep? Why did I speed when it was icy? And I could have died. But by the grace of God, I didn't. It's a warning. Let's examine what happened here, and let's not do it again. I think that's Paul's point. Because here's what I know about God. He's a good God. But I also know a verse called Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. And it says, he who he loves, he disciplines. He loves you like a good father. And he's not going to let you condemn yourself like the world does. He'll let you do it from time and again. Just like when you do something stupid and you survive it for some reason, I think some of these guys were will, were a little little, little ill and a little weak. He's hey, slow down. <laughs> you made it that time. <laughs> think about it. You ever get laid up and think, use that time? Sometimes God may just be slowing you down so you can think about these things. Not as a punishment, just hey, God's going to get your attention here. right? If you've lived long enough, and you strayed away from God's will in your life, you'll know he can take you outside the woodshed, won't he? Because that's what a good father does. He'll let you have it a little bit, and hopefully you come back around, and he welcomes you in, and you go about your life. Sometimes that woodshed gets hard, and sometimes you don't come back from behind the woodshed. You know that? Because God loves you that much. And I happen to believe that God mercy kills a lot of Christians. I think he mercy killed my brother. You are a believer, Vince. And what you're doing, you've had plenty of chances. And what you're doing is not honoring to anybody. And I love you that much, it's time to come home. You're not helping anybody. And I love you. And I've whipped you enough. And I've moved you enough and now you're gonna come home and you're gonna have a glorified body and you'll be free of that addiction and you're gonna be loving me for all of eternity. Amen? That's the warning. So there's tr- two great Christian principles, leadership, headship, and communion. I pray that you would look at this on your own and that you would be blessed because you're in God's word. Amen? So Father, be with us tonight. May we have a, a true spirit of unity and love in the body. I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in our lives as you are in heaven. Send us on our way and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys.